0: Well, hello. After that, I think all of you men should go to the men's conference, don't you think? They talked us pastors into doing that, and uh, they got us there and then told us what we were supposed to do. So uh, you better come. So, all right. Uh, I get to continue the series today that Pastor Terry started last week. And if you have the notes, you know that the title for today is simply Why. Why? and we've got a couple of questions that came in. Some of you guys asked those questions. I'm gonna read some of those questions, but essentially it's, why do bad things happen to good people? And so I wanna tell you a little bit about my week and give you the reasons why I was asking God that same question this week. Uh, But the thing about the question why is it's relative, meaning that if it happens to me, It concerns me, but it doesn't really affect you. So my week went a little bit like this. I get a call from my wife and she says, hey, the kids went down to the basement and there's a leak dripping onto the ping pong table. I was like, okay, well, I'll go home. The problem with me is I'm a pastor, not a plumber, right? But I'm a learner, so I was like, I I can do this. Well, when I try to do home projects, this is how it typically works. I go to Ace Hardware, get everything I need, start the project, realize I don't have everything I need, <laughs> go back to Ace Hardware, get everything I need, go back, continue the project, hurt myself probably in the process somewhere, break something else so what was like a pinhole leak is now maybe you know, a bigger, a bigger plumbing issue. And then I still don't have everything I need, but Ace Hardware closes earlier than Home Depot. So I end up at Home Depot right at about when it's closing and then spend the rest of the evening (laughs) trying to fix a problem that I should have called a professional for, right? But whenever I complete a project, if you know me or if you happen to be in my house during that time, you know that I finish, I test my work, and then I go, I am a genius. Because I replaced four feet of copper pipe in my basement, and I did it. Having never done it before, I turned the water back on, bone dry, no leaks. This is awesome. I finished the day feeling like a champion. So I, when you, when you get all the water out of the pipe in order to cut it, you have to turn everything on. And so I had my kids helping me turn everything off. And so uh, we shut off all of uh, the sinks and everything in the house after we turned on the water. And so I go to bed, wake up the next morning, and I think, I should double check my work. <laughs> I'm a genius, but I should double check my work because I'm a pastor, not a plumber, right? So I open up my basement door, get to the top of the steps, and I see that we now have a pond in our basement. I was like, I'm not a genius. I'm the worst plumber there is. So I squish squash my way over to the side of my basement, climb up on a step stool where I was doing my work, and it's bone dry. And so I was like, oh, my goodness, in piecing these things together, maybe I created another problem. My house is old. Maybe I uh, kind of pulled at another joint. And so it, it took me a while. I called my dad. Uh, and anyway, in the course of all of that, we realized that the front hose that had been turned on had never been turned off. So it kind of leaked through the windowsill and created a pond and uh, we could have gone out and bought some koi fish and then just called it a day. But, um, so anyways, that was my week. So I call one of my friends at the Lakewood campus, Gary Budd, who owns Good Hands uh, Cleaning and he was gonna come to the rescue, but it was maybe kind of, maybe he could get there. And so I decided to go to uh, the rental store and get kind of one of those industrial shop backs and uh, and an industrial fan. And so I did that. And in the course of doing that, Gary Bud came later and saved the day for me. But in the course of that, lifting that heavy equipment, I tweaked my back. And so by the time I got done with that, I was feeling like an old man. And I was like, why, God? Why? He didn't answer the question. And then on Friday night at 2 a.m., my phone rings, and it's the security company at the Lakewood campus saying, hey, the back door just swung open. You want to go check it out? I was like, sure. I jump out of bed, run over there, and then I'm like, what am I doing? (laughs) I'm a pastor, not a police officer. (laughs) And so I I called Lakewood PD back, and I was like, I'm not going in there unless you guys come over here with me. And so I waited, and in the course of the waiting, kind of figured that it was probably nothing, and it was. It had just swung open. There was a lot of wind. But in the course of that Friday evening, I lost a lot of sleep, and I said, why, God? And he didn't answer. So let me read to you a couple of the questions that came in over the course of the weeks that uh, we asked you guys to send in questions for us. Here's the first one. I get that bad things are going to happen and people will die, but now, but how do I find the assurance to say God is great, God is good, when I lost someone I love who should not be dead, when bad people are alive, or when mass casualties happen and so many people die and others lose everything? My analogy now pales in comparison to that question, don't you think? Because why is relative. Here's another one, why can we not hear God's voice when we are doing everything we know to do to keep that communication line clear? A third one, my dad was struck by lightning and killed when I was 12 years old. Why didn't God intervene? Why do bad things happen to good people? And the last one, if God is in control, why do bad things happen? It's a daunting task. It's one that I got assigned by the rest of the teaching team. And I was like, why? (laughs) They didn't answer that question. (laughs) We can go through a list, and I'm sure that you guys have coached your friends and family members through some of these things. And some of these answer the question, but the list is incomplete, right? Uh, consequences of individual sin, sometimes the why happens because somebody just simply didn't follow God's commandments. We all live in a fallen world and so some of these things happen because corporately people sin. Natural order, copper pipes sometimes leak, right? But all of our reasoning won't explain every circumstance. You know, at the previous church that I worked at, We dismissed service one day, and a gunman walked into the building and killed two girls who my wife and I had just spent time talking to their family. We had made a connection over the years, and we had had a conversation before everybody departed to go to lunch, and um, their four daughters were involved in missions work, and I had helped them go overseas, and they were planning on going on missions that same summer. And They walked this way, we walked that way, and now they have a lingering question of why, and I have a lingering question of why. It's relative, right? There's an ancient philosopher called Epicurus. He lived around 300 BC, so that puts him before Christ. He was in his early 20s when Alexander the Great passed away. And then a year later, Aristotle passed away. And so Epicurus is becoming a man and shaping his worldview at that time. He lived in Athens and he came up basically with this philosophy. I think they're going to put it up here on the screen for us. He basically said, pain and suffering exist. So that equals, or that means that a loving God can't possibly exist, right? You've heard that. Argued. You've had people maybe that don't connect with a local church body kind of give that as an excuse. Well, I don't believe in God because pain and suffering exist, and so therefore a loving God can't possibly exist, right? And so people become atheists because of that philosophy. But there's a major fault to that, and we're going to go to the next one. And this basically says pain and suffering exist, but that means or that equals that God is greater than our reasoning. That's where we need to find ourselves, right? That just because I can't explain something doesn't mean that we just erase God out of the equation because that puts us on the same level as God, right? Well, if I can't explain it, then nobody can explain it. Well, who are you, right? Isn't that the same question that God asked Job? A whole book on why God, what was God's response? He didn't answer the question. He said, where were you at the foundation of the world? Where were you when I cast the stars into place? Job was like, oh right, I'm not God. And so therefore, there is a point at which God is greater than our reasoning. And when he doesn't answer the why, that doesn't mean he doesn't exist. It doesn't mean that he's not acting. It doesn't mean that he's not reacting. It doesn't mean that he's not moving or creating a situation that we can't necessarily point to in the here and now, right? See, we base our philosophy sometimes on this Western Christianity, This, dare I say it, turn on the TV, send in a check, and you'll be blessed. Right? Right? Smile through it all, and God's gonna bless you. Am I stepping on toes? But take that same Christianity into the Eastern context. Go to India. Go to the Middle East. Go to China. And then decide to be a Christian. Then decide to take that message of reconciliation, God to the world and live that out. And you're already making a decision before suffering happens that that's what's in store. And I will suffer because that which I am about to say yes to is greater than my suffering. They're not asking why. They're already signing up and saying, of course, that's what this all means, right? So are we asking the right question? Why? It's a paralyzing question. It keeps us in place. And now let me pause here to say this. I don't mean to just skip over somebody's grief because grieving is a legitimate process. And we have groups in place and leaders in place to help people navigate A season of grief where emotions and questioning are not just allowed, they're encouraged. And so we want to put you pastorally on that track. And if there is something that you legitimately are going through or went through and you haven't yet grieved through that process or that grief process has separated you from your relationship with God, there are things and there are groups where we would encourage you to plug into those things and get together with people (laughs) who will be there when you do have to ask the question, why? But if you're removed from that instance, but that instance hasn't removed itself from your heart, and it's a blockade or a hurdle between you and your relationship with the Lord, then I would challenge you with this, that why becomes a paralyzing question, and we need to find a progressive question. The Bible never answers the question, why? So what question should we ask? I say we should ask, how? How, Lord, am I supposed to get through this? This has happened, and so how am I gonna get through this? The answer on your notes is that the how is always inclusive of the who, because you're asking the how of somebody, and the how will be answered by that somebody about others as well. And so we have community to get plugged into. We have the scriptures to dive into. Just open your Bible to the middle of the book and read a couple of Psalms. Psalms are filled with the why. Almost every single one of them is why, God. And then most of them end with, but yet now I will praise him and I will wait for him. So we do, we have the scriptures, we have community, and then we have people in the scriptures. You guys know Mary was visited by an angel and was told that she was going to be the mother of Messiah. She didn't say why. She said, how can this be? She was already in a posture to carry the greatness of our Lord. And she simply asked how. That's an okay question to ask. Paul is a great example for us. Let me just read a list of who Paul was and what he went through. And I think that can sometimes center us onto our journey as we go through some of these things. Because if I were to list my struggles this week that I just navigated and told to you, Changing a pipe and going through a plumbing problem doesn't even hold a candle to the things that Paul went through, right? In 2 Corinthians 11, you can find this list. Paul said that he suffered countless beatings. He was often near death. Five times he received 39 lashes. It was said that 40 lashes would kill a man. And five times he received 39 lashes. Three times he was beaten with rods. He was stoned and left for dead. When people would throw stones, they weren't flicking pebbles at somebody. They were aiming big rocks, sharp, jagged rocks at somebody that the whole community had determined was worthy of death. And so they picked them up and cast it on him as a sentence of death, and they left him for dead. He walked back into the city. And recovered three times, he was shipwrecked, and one of those times there was a night and a day that he was drift on the sea. And then also, we know this verse very well, and I'm going to dive into it. We know that he had a thorn in his flesh, we don't know necessarily what that means, but he refers to it as a messenger of Satan sent to harass me. So, let's go into that uh, verse. It's 2nd Corinthians chapter 12, verse 8 and 9. They'll have it up on the screen here. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it, should, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. What do we notice there? We notice that it was three times that Paul pleaded with God. And then God's answer came. Have you ever noticed that? So sometimes we ask, why God? Why God? Why God? We ask other people, why would God do this? Why would God allow this? Why wouldn't God just take this? And we get frustrated because we don't get any answers. But Paul, (laughs) one of the greatest Christians that ever lived, right? he asked three times and the first two times he never even got an answer. So if you're not getting an answer, just keep pressing into God, right? And then it says, my mercy is sufficient for you, right? No, it says my grace is sufficient for you. And the difference between grace and mercy is this. Grace is getting that which we don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. So God intentionally didn't say, my mercy is sufficient for you. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. So what that tells me is be on the lookout for something in the midst of your suffering that you don't necessarily deserve. And that will push you through this. Sufficient, we all know what sufficient means. Having fully enough just enough sometimes, more than enough other times. It's sufficient for us. And then I like this, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The power of Christ. Let me tell you a story that just gives you a glimpse into what the power of Christ was and what the power of Christ looked like, felt like as he's writing this, for sure these people have heard this story. It's found in John chapter 18. And Jesus is near the end of his ministry. He goes into the Garden of Gethsemane and he prays, but he knows that he's already been betrayed. Judas has snuck away from the disciples and Jesus knows that uh, his crucifixion is imminent. And he's waiting. And then all of a sudden he wakes up his disciples because there's a band of soldiers. And chief priests and elders that come into this garden. So he wakes up his disciples. Judas is leading this band of soldiers and these leaders to Jesus. And they walk up to him and Jesus says, who is it that you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus responded, I am he. And with those words, a band of grown men fell down to the ground. You can read it in your Bible, John chapter 18. Grown men, at the sound of the voice of our Lord, simply saying, I am he, (laughs) fell down. These are soldiers. They got swords and spears in their hands. And they're looking for Jesus, and he's like, here I am. I'm he. They fell down. (laughs) And so Jesus, as they're kind of gathering themselves and getting up from the ground, he's like, he's like, Who are you looking for? (laughs) And he says it again, and they're like, Jesus of Nazareth. And he's like, yep, that's me. And then they, you know the story, they eventually took him away. Another story of the power of God is found in Genesis chapter 1, right? When he speaks things into being. He takes void and chaos. He takes darkness and just speaks, let there be light, and all of a sudden there's light. He creates things with the spoken word. The Greek word is ex nihilio. Out of nothing, you create something just by speaking. And Paul says that that power, that the power of Christ may rest on me. Let me ask you a question. How good are we at resting in those moments where everything inside of us is saying, why, God, if you really exist, why are you standing by? Maybe he's waiting for us to allow the power of Christ to rest upon us. Does that make sense? The same man who I talked about, Paul, who went through all of those trials, who had every right in the world, more so than we do, to ask the question why, he wrote this in that same second letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter four, starting in verse six. It says this, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Next slide. Next slide. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. When I read the Bible, what I like to do is dive into every sentence and every word and contrast it with what we already know of the scripture, maybe pull in a couple other verses and some of those stories that we know. And so I'm going to kind of just break this apart um, line by line or word by word and take you through a couple of these highlights. And so he starts off by saying, for God, who said, let sh- light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts. It He's saying that same God. Have you ever been uh, in a conversation and you forget the name of somebody, but you and your friend are trying to, trying to uh, talk about somebody else and you're like, you know who I'm talking about? You know, the guy that he always wears red shoes or, um, Hey, you know, that guy, he, uh, he owns this business or, um, you know, that, you know, that one, that one family that they, they always come late to church. You know who I'm talking about? You know, (laughs) it's almost like Paul is trying to remind us of who he's talking about. Hey, you know, that God, you know, not, not that, not that God, I know you guys live in Corinth and it's close to Athens and you're surrounded by all, all these Greek people that believe in like all these multitude of gods, this God does this and this God does that and all of these things. But he's saying, you know that, you know that one God, let's see, um, oh yeah, that God that spoke light into being, <laughs> that God that kind of created the whole world that ex nihilio God, that God that kind of creates something out of nothing, that God. And we're, we're like, oh, yeah, that, that God. He says this that same God said, who said, let light shine out of darkness, that same God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So that God, who in Genesis chapter 1 spoke and said, let there be light, is the same God that speaks into our hearts, let there be light. We say, why? How? How am I going to get through this? And God the whole time is going, let there be light. Let it rise out of the darkness of our created being and let it shine through us. Just like Moses, when his face became so lit up after he was in the presence of God. That same God, that's the God who we're talking about, right? And then jars of clay but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. I found this out for the first time while I was studying this, that 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 phrase right there, you know, we, it, there was a band that kind of came and stole that, stole that terminology. And so it's kind of that thing. And so we always, we always read it in most translations, just say it that way, jars of clay, but you can actually translate it as like a clay tablet. And that clay tablet back in those days was the same clay tablet that you would use to cast, your vote. It was your ballot. And so he's saying, but we have this treasure on tablets of clay. Maybe saying in a way, we have this treasure that shows who we vote for. And we vote for who? Oh yeah, that same God who, when there was just chaos before the creation of the world, When it was just formless and void, kind of like our situations when we ask why, there's a lot of chaos and there's a lot of formlessness and there's a lot of void, but it says in Genesis chapter one that the spirit of God hovered over those things and then spoke, let there be light. And so out of that chaos, out of that formlessness, out of that void onto tablets of clay, we now get to cast our vote for that God, but also when it's translated into jars of clay, it's really saying earthen vessels. There's plenty of different jars of clay that you can go out and and pick up and look at, but the way that Paul wrote it down was earthen vessels, meaning unglazed, the most simple form It's not decorated, it's not painted, it's not glazed, it's porous, it's microporous. And the thing about jars of clay, those earthen vessels that the people of Corinth would have known what he was referring to when he said that, is this, when those jars of clay are filled with a liquid, you can tell on the outside how full it is because they're microporous and so they begin to seep just a little bit. And on the outside, they turn just a little bit of a different hue of that earthen color compared to above the water line. And so it says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels that can't even help themselves to hold it in because we seep. Because that same God who said, let there be... Let it seep out of you because you can't even contain all of my glory and all of my goodness. The word afflicted right there, it says we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Afflicted can mean hard pressed. It means hemmed into a narrow space from which there are no escapes. Reminds me of the story when the Hebrew people left Egypt and they were allowed to go, but then Pharaoh changed his mind and goes after them. It's an interesting story because God tells the Hebrew people exactly where to camp and he puts them in a location where they are hard pressed. They're hemmed in, there's nowhere to go. Maybe that's what you feel like when you ask why. But God, see, when the Egyptians are coming over our hill and we're hard pressed and we don't see any way out, we can deny God. It's not really gonna help, right? We can call on God and we can remind God, God, you're the one who out of nothing created something and I'm gonna stand in belief that you will make a way where there is no way. And Paul said that, that we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. See, struck down, but not destroyed has a word picture to it. It basically means that we're being chased. We're being chased and we're almost being caught. It's like we get knocked down, and now the enemy has come upon us. Have you ever felt that way? Where you get to the end of yourself and you're like, man, I'm running. James even says, flee from the devil and he'll flee from you. And sometimes we're fleeing from the devil and the devil's tracking us down, right? And it just keeps happening. And then all of a sudden we find ourselves stumbling and now we're on our back waiting for the worst of the worst to happen. But Paul's words to these people, out of the depth of his own experience, says this, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. We're chased, pulled down to the ground, but we rise again. And this is that moment in the movies that we watch where our hero gets knocked down, but then all of a sudden finds this inner strength and his eyes dilate and his muscles flex and he pushes the enemy off of him. And all of a sudden it's like the turn of the tide, right? And it's like, we say this, you got me all the way to this point. You did. You got me to asking why. You got me to actually following in the philosophy of Epicurus and doubting that there was a God. You got me all the way to that point. You knocked me down, but you couldn't get me. You couldn't finish me off. And if you can't finish me off, then that tells me something about my enemy. And that tells me something about me and about you, right? Because if we truly believe the words of Paul that says we get all the way to that point, but the enemy can't go any further. That tells us that there's something going on inside of us. Inside of us, broken and fragile, we contain something that is so much greater than us. So when we ask why, it's okay for a while. It's okay to say, why God? Why am I walking through this? But you guys know, just as well as I do, that when our friends go through something so devastating and so drastic, we're paying just a little bit more attention to how they respond, right? We help out, sure, when we can. We pray when we remember, but we're watching to see how they'll navigate something, thinking in the back of our minds, if I had to go through that, how would I respond? So if you find yourself trying to navigate one of those situations, know this, people are watching and it's your opportunity to seep just a little bit what's inside of you. And this is just a reminder of what is inside of each and every one of us. A God, a good God, a great God, the same God who hovered over chaos, formlessness and void. And then when he spoke, everything changed, right? So Heavenly Father, we come before you. God, we give you glory. And we recognize that you're looking for faith inside of us and that you've given that faith to us. You've placed it inside of earthen vessels. And so today, God, as we stand here, as porous earthen vessels. God, some of us are empty of your glory and your goodness. We've wandered from relationship with you because our finite minds can't track sometimes with an infinite God. And so God, we just ask that you would pour out of your Holy Spirit into us fill us anew, fill us afresh and help us God to carry the light of your goodness and of your glory. God, for those who are navigating difficult situations, we just ask that you would be near to them, that you would be Emmanuel with them and that we as a church and community would rally around those that we're close to, that need a phone call, that need a friend. God, help us to respond in those situations. But God, for those who aren't necessarily going through this, God, I pray right now that all of us would dive into your scriptures and ready ourselves for the trials of this life. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart for I have overcome the world. And so God, I pray that as we press into your scriptures that it wouldn't just be ink on paper, but it would be living, it would be active, it would be food for our soul, God. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand to your feet and we'll worship.